0: If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right. We circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for classic conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin.
1: All right, Jessica, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 212 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duwaskin. Great to have you back for what is sure to be a classic conversation for the record books. My guest today is comedian Mitch Fatale. Top requested comedian on satellite radio. One best comedian at the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival. Mitch's Comedy Central half hour stand up special was ranked number six all time by viewers. Mitch has a brand new comedy special called Bad Girls. Buckle up because this conversation is going to be amazing as we dive into the ups and downs of Mitch's career. And that's coming up in just a few seconds. In these few seconds, I want to remind everyone of episode 210. I'm sure you already listened, but if you haven't, Kimia Papornia was my guest, amazing actress from Hulu's reboot, Abby's, and so much more. Do not miss that conversation with Kimia. She is awesome. But in the meantime, let's focus up on Mitch Fatel. I worked with Mitch back in 2004. We reminisce a little. We go pretty deep. This is a deep conversation. I did mark this one explicit only because there's some language. It's adult language. I just wanted to make sure if you blare it at work, Maybe headphones for this one in certain areas. Nothing you can't handle, but didn't want to catch you off guard either. That being said, you're in for a treat. I present to you, Mitch Fatal. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest. One of the funniest human beings in the world.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, comedian Mitch Fatal. What? Am I the most famous interview you've done so far? Yeah. Oh, you're just saying that. <laughs> Who's more famous than me that you've done? Maybe Robert Klein. Would that be fair? Never heard of him. Never heard of Robert Klein? Never heard of him. <laughs> Steals all his shit. Who else under that? Um, Rita Rodner. <laughs> Never heard of her. Never. All right, well. You're talking C-list. I mean, now we're up to A-list. You're at the list with me. That's why I said no. I mean... <laughs> Was Robert, uh, that would be an interesting one, I would think, Robert Klein yeah he was cool he was cool yeah.
1: I, I liked it because he was he was one of the only people that would go dwaskin he would call me dwaskin <laughs> <laughs> i like that for some reason
0: he stole that from me that i was planning on doing that <laughs> i told him to do that when he because he, he called me he was really excited about doing your podcast and i told him i said call him dwaskin it's really funny he loves it
1: so mitch last time we saw each other was 2004
0: Isn't that crazy? I can't,
1: comedy is weird in this sense. Where was it?
0: Where did we see each other? We
1: were, I emceed for you at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle.
0: Must have made an impact on me because I always remembered your name. Like every time like we'd check in, I'd be like, I remember that kid. So that was, yeah, I remember, I remember working with you, which is, I know it sounds like a, like I'm being all, I remember you. Like that's really special. But as a comedian for the last 40 years, I've worked so many places To remember someone is a pretty cool thing that you don't see regularly. I mean, we don't, like you said, two thousand and four was the last time we saw each other, and I remembered your name, so I remembered working with you and liking you.
1: Well, that's a relief. I appreciate that. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that weekend. That was sort of my early, early years in comedy. The impact that you had on my life, which isn't comedy related, though I'm sure there is comedy stuff. But so this is going to sound so crazy, and hopefully not. We ate after one of the shows. I think we got sushi. We got sushi in Royal Oak.
0: I was going to say to Jews, it was either Chinese or uh, you are a Jew, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course you are. So I was going to say we probably did Chinese, but sushi is a good second place.
1: So we're we're getting the sushi and it's car- we're carrying out. We're going to bring back to the Ridley's Club. And okay. I didn't tip. And you like, dude, you got to tip carry out person. <laughs> I I know it's crazy, but it never occurred to me. I'm a a tipper if I go to a restaurant. It never occurred to me, I think, to tip the person who's just handing me the food as I hand them my money and I walk out.
0: I hope that I didn't send you in the wrong direction. You're not supposed to give a 15 to 20% tip you you know, because you're not eating there and there's no table to clean up. I think 5 to 10%. My reason being that I used to be working at one of those places when I was an up-and-comer you do just as much work getting everything ready for the people that are coming. You do just as much work. You have to package everything up and go get it from the kitchen and stuff. You don't have to keep going back to the table. That's why I don't believe in the 15 to 20% tip. I think like a 5 or 10% is reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I
1: hope- but I I was like nothing. And you were like, Jeff, you got to leave something. And I think you explained that to me. And one of, the I mean, reasons, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up is I figured, all right, if there's anyone else out there as naive as I was, that it was it's just a good reminder that these people work hard and they, they count on the tips as
0: well. Having said that, I am not the tipper of anybody. We've gone a little tip crazy since 2004. I will not tip my Subway guy, the Subway sandwich guy, or the Tokyo Joe's, or the McDonald's, or the 7-Eleven guy. Like, I don't tip those guys. Because in my mind, that or like the coffee person, do you tipped up your. No, bar no, store? no.
1: It's usually if I were to go to a place where I would have tipped, then I do. Then the, I do the. Exchange. I hate
0: that over tipping. Yeah. Yeah. To me, tipping tip stands for to ensure promptness. Maybe it does. If I it know. doesn't, it does now. Maybe it doesn't because. But but so the, the point is when you go to a restaurant. The people are taking care of a lot of people and it's just that you're getting what you asked for. If you just walk up and order something and they're making it for you right there, I don't understand what the tip is for. And the other thing I learned is this. Oh, here's a little hint I learned. I recently had a friend who owned a bar and I was at their bar hanging out and one of their bartenders didn't come in. And I said, I'll tend bar. I haven't done it in like 40 years. I thought it would be really fun. And it was like I tended bar. And what I realized was, when the people tip you or don't tip you, you don't even notice. Like at the end of the night, you go, "Oh, well, let me see what tips I got." But the people who didn't tip, I don't—I didn't even remember them. So then I realized, like, oh, all these years that I'm a tipping bartender is like an extra five bucks to seem cool. Like you're just you—you you go in and out of their mind so fast that you get no credit for the extra big tip. So. I've become the guy now since then that just gives like 50 cents because what I realize is you're getting busy and you're walking back and forth and you're not noticing, oh, that guy just gave me a $20 tip. You don't even notice. You don't even remember. And you really don't remember who didn't tip you. So I was like, I got a kid now. When We're in a recession. I'm watching my tipping.
1: (laughs) Well, I just wanted to point out you've cost me thousands since 2004.
0: (laughs) I feel bad. That's the (laughs) one lesson I brought to a a young comedian. (laughs) It wasn't... You taught me that you know punchlines should be subtle. You're like, told me I should should tip more.
1: (laughs) Well, I do remember one of the other things that stood out that weekend is how committed you were to the character on stage. And one of the things that I specifically remember, actually, I made a scrapbook. So this is one of the things that made it into the scrapbook. The first ten years, I made a book to show my kids where I was during those ten years.
0: (laughs) You know what I mean? How old are your kids?
1: My kids are 20 and 23. Okay. One of the shows, you broke character, like a woman pissed you off so bad.
0: Yeah, that's happened. And I'm so every time it happens, I'm so sad about it. And I'm upset with myself and I beat myself up. And I hate that anyone ever gets to me like that. I don't think anyone's gotten to me in years. I think that's what comes with experience is I even saw Joe Rogan freak out on a heckler once, like freak out like way more than he could have, like no funny lines, just yelling at them. Now I watch Joe Rogan and I'm like, oh, he's such a different guy now. He's so confident because he's proven to himself just how fucking amazing he is that he doesn't care if someone, you know, he does like, so I think that back then we cared more, but then you grow up and you're like, all right, I don't care about these hecklers. And so you're more confident. So they're, they're less important to you. And I would never break character now if someone heckled me. But back then, I think you're more nervous on stage and you're more like everybody's watching you and you just get panicked easier
1: yeah i always reflect i always think back of the times like when i first started doing comedy if somebody coughed i'd have to go on to the next joke because if it broke my
0: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah.
1: if it broke (laughs) and then eventually you get to the point where someone could interrupt you you could have an entire conversation and then just go right back to the joke
0: yeah it becomes much more like a pilot like after going through some turbulence you know how to get right back on exactly Yeah, I think a lot of what we do is a lot of what comics do is being a pilot. I always use that analogy that when it's tanking, when it when you're when you're plummeting into the ground and you're set, the worst thing you can do is panic. I was literally like this a pilot who's crashing to the ground. Remaining calm doesn't necessarily mean in any way that they can save the plane, but they have more of a chance at just panicking, going, We're gonna die. <laughs> so I've kind of learned that like. To keep in control of the plane if it's diving. And I've also learned that that doesn't necessarily ensure success. I think everything in life comes down to giving yourself a better chance of success. And the biggest thing that I've learned is that doing all these self-help exercises and learning about yourself and it doesn't mean you're going to be ultimately successful. It just means you're giving yourself better odds of being successful in different situations. And odds are, I think, you know what we're looking for in life.
1: Right. It's a numbers game. It's if you
0: all a numbers game.
1: Give yourself the best chance. Yeah, I always found it fascinating, like the skill you develop where you could be, you're doing something to the audience, but in your head, you're having a full conversation with yourself, maybe about what's coming next or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> the ability to multitask.
0: Yeah. I learned that I got too, this is when I knew I was too successful, if that word means anything, because I'm so not too successful anymore. <laughs> But I remember I got so successful. And this is a this is actually a cautionary tale, that I was on stage one day doing my bit. And while I was on stage doing my bit, I remember distinctly going through what I had to stop and get later at Whole Foods. Like in my mind, I was going, Oh, I'm gonna get that curry chicken salad for dinner. And oh, I can't forget to get milk. Should I get milk at Whole Foods? And then I realized. Oh, I'm having this conversation and I'm in the middle of a show. And it made me think that it was bad. I was like, oh, I'm not even enjoying it. Like, I'm just doing it like a job now. And I remember uh, thinking that was kind of cool that I could do my show and still think about it. But then I realized that I wasn't enjoying the moment anymore as much as I should.
1: How did you get back to enjoying the moment? I
0: started getting booked less <laughs> as, I got, as I got less and less successful. And, and seriously, like as I as my career progressed, And I had a big peak and ultimately a valley, and then kind of came to this nice kind of plane where I'm at now, where I still do gigs I really enjoy. I have enough money in the bank that I don't have to take the shitty gigs. And because I don't work as much, when I do work, I enjoy it like the old days. I enjoy the art of it more. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a trip down that journey for a second. You know, after having worked together, I didn't know a lot of your background, so I've been I dove in a little bit. You started comedy at like fifteen,
0: which doesn't seem like such a big deal now because a lot of kids are trying to do it. But back then, it was still a very brand new art form for ki- I mean, kids didn't do it, and I just knew I wanted to do it. Uh, and I started when I was fifteen, going on stage. I remember my f- couple of my first jokes, which were horrible. I did a joke. My big joke was. All the kids in school get high. When I smoke pot, all it, okay, just give me a second because I don't remember, but it was like, all, my ki- all the kids in school smoke pot and all pot does is make me really horny and hungry. So now when I smoke pot, all I want to do is fuck Betty Crocker. I think that was my <laughs> my big joke when I was 15. And I remember my dad and mom going, it's not really funny, but it was kind of funny. But now I know why they were saying that. But that was my big joke when I was 15. Uh, and I wasn't good. I mean, when I look back, I was—I can't tell you. I was a really great 15 year old stand-up comic. I was kind of, it was kind of painful what I was doing. But what ultimately happened is for two years, I did it. I got so bad at it and I didn't get better. I got horrible that I dropped out restarted up when I was 21. But when I restarted, all the experiences starting when I was 15 came to me and I was way above any other open micer and immediately took off. So everybody was like, my God, he's like the best open micer. And I and my career took off very fast at 21. But looking back, what they didn't know is that I had been doing it since I was 15. So I so all the initial stuff of like knowing what the stage feels like, knowing how to handle a mic, knowing how to talk, knowing how to like not panic, knowing how to write jokes, like I'd already Put so much of that experience in that when I restarted up at 21, I seemed like a Wonderkind. So, although it's cool, I was doing stand up when I was 15, I wasn't necessarily like a great stand up. I was just doing stand up. And I'm proud of myself for that looking back. I was definitely not, if I played the tapes for you now, which I have somewhere, no one would say, like, that kid's going to go on to work at Royal Oaks, Michigan and eat tons of sushi. Like, it was, <laughs> you would have thought, like, okay. He's going to probably be on meth one day, that kid. But, you know, yeah, it's kind of cool that I did do it at 15.
1: Sorry to interrupt. We have to take a quick break. I do want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my amazing conversation with Mitch Fatale. I think it's amazing, though. I mean, good or bad, right? I mean, it's the idea of a 15-year-old getting up and doing what some consider the scariest thing yeah. ever. You know, when I talk to people about doing stand-up, even if I talk to improv people, they're like, how do you do yeah. you know, Like, They're amazed that we get up there with no one else on stage, right? Yeah. To me, improv is, I, I would never, I mean, it's just, you know, anyway, so I- At 15, I mean, to get that much, that type of experience, just hands-on, that's pretty cool. Yeah,
0: it was meant to be. I was meant to be a comedian, and um, that came easy to me. Sports didn't, and I wanted girls really bad. I mean, I just, I turned 15, and I was just hard as a rock all the time and wanted girls to let me put my penis in them, and I didn't know how to get them because I was so bad at sports. I was short. I just wasn't the heartthrob in school. But I knew that when I made people laugh, all the girls liked me. So it was like, so it was almost like I was forced into like, well, it's either that or I'm going to just be in a shut-in because I wanted to, I loved comedy, but I also knew that like any fear of being on stage was overwhelmed by my fear of not getting to touch girls' breasts. So... (laughs) I wanted so badly to be famous and do something that made me stick out to the girls that that overruled my initial feeling of panic that you would have as a fifteen-year-old going on stage.
1: Did that work for fifteen-year-old Mitch, or were the girls still interested in the guys who focused on That's guitar? A really
0: good question, <laughs> It's a really good question. Because looking back, I realized I was harder on myself than I needed to be. I got some pretty hot girls on my own. Like there was a couple of girls. I just wasn't Bart Sheridan. So when I was a kid, Bart Sheridan was the good looking kid in our school. And like every girl loved Bart. It's so funny. The name is just Bart Simpson now, but it was Bart Sheridan. He was just a good looking kid in school and all the girls loved Bart. And I just wanted to be Bart so bad. So the fact, and isn't this life, Jeff, that like, when do we learn to stop competing with others and just be ourselves? Because looking back, I was doing fine. I had a couple of hot girlfriends and girls liked me and I was being invited to parties, but I wasn't Bart. Like I wasn't the guy that every girl wanted to date. He was on the baseball team and he was just so freaking good looking and secure and confident and loved me. And like, I just um, hated him because he was so good looking. And looking back, I'm like, it wasn't the comedy that got me girls. I would get, get pretty girlfriends. I'm a really sweet, funny guy. I did notice that when I started getting very successful, the girls that liked Bart were now liking me. So that was a good feeling because I was like, oh, now I'm getting the girls, you know, but then syphilis and fucking chlamydia came along with that. And I was like, Bart didn't tell me about that. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, be careful what you wish for, because all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, this is not really the excitement I thought it would be. I thought once you get girls like Bart, your life would be perfect. And it wasn't. And, you know, ultimately, I'd hate to wrap this up in a little bow, but I'm the dad now of a five-year-old and like... He has given me so much greater joy in my life than any girl. I thought, like, does that make sense that it was like, it's so silly to me that like that was the answer back then. And then I got it. I was like, it's so not the answer. It's so not the answer. And I understand why people think getting hot girls or whatever it is, you know, for hot girls, whatever, like there's no answer. Like it's nothing's gonna make you happy. It's just life sucks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like your kid will make you happy. Like you have kids. Do you love your kids?
1: Love my kids. And and you're you're 100 right. And it's it's the people once they learn that lesson that you just said that you're not really competing with others. That we all can exist and rise rise the tide together for us all. It's the people once you're an adult that are still in that mentality. That you end up staying away from, but they all click. Yeah, and
0: I have a friend like that. You're right. Who's like one of my dad friends, and like all he does is like tell us how much money he's making and how much, and we're like, seriously? Like that's still that like I'm like because it's because I've I guess I've had a lot of money and a lot of girls. And I don't want to be the hack old like, and it didn't make me happy because it was really kind of cool. I thought what was happening, but the truth of the matter is like, it really doesn't do any, it doesn't change anything. The joy that I get now at a standup is so much more pure because the joy I get is not of like, I'm a big famous standup comedian. Now it's of writing like a really well-written thought out joke that when I get the new punchline, I'm like, oh, that's mine forever now. I just wrote a new line that's never existed. And so that means so much more to me than the stuff that I used to think makes me happy. Now, having said that, I still will now. And again, occasionally... See a girl on Twitter or Tinder, not Tinder because I'm married. But uh but like I'll see a girl on like Twitter like a big booty yoga girl or something like that and I'll be like, "Oh my god, that would have been happiness if I would have been that girl right now." <laughs> and and I have to remind myself because I think this is why so many guys their marriages break up because they they forget that like, "Oh, that's not going to be my aunt" because it's just it's because you see those girls, those thirst traps and you're like, oh, God, that would be so good. I'd be so happy if I could have that. And you have to, and I remember, like, I kind of did have that. And it was like, and I used to think, I mean, you know, I can't sell as many tickets as I used to. I sell, I could sell a good 100 tickets per show now, but I used to be able to sell 500 tickets. And I would think, I'd kill to sell 500 tickets right now, but I was fucking miserable. I was miserable. Like, I would go in and do the show and couldn't wait to leave and was stressed out. So, you know, it's just, I'm so happy that I got to this age that I could look back and go, okay, so it is true when people who were famous and had money said, like, money can't buy you happiness and blah blah blah. Like you realize, like, oh, they were they were right because I remember being the guy going, like, easier for you to say you've got the money and the girls, and then you go, oh, <laughs> okay, they're right. It does like there's no side of me now that sees someone with a. I have a very pretty house, a very nice house for me, thirty five hundred square feet and it's fine but i'll still see some times people like 10,000 square feet houses with big pools and 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 i have to remember like i've been in situations where go like that becomes just your house you don't you don't walk in every morning and go like oh my god my life is perfect look at my house it literally just becomes your house and you don't think about it after that. I've been through enough of that in my life now to know that like any of those things that you think are going to make you happy really won't make you happy.
1: I agree. I have a house, uh, I don't know, thirty-five hundred and one
0: square feet, maybe. What the hell, man? What the fuck was that? Just, <laughs> just slightly bigger <different laughs> than yours.
1: Just, uh, no, but, you know, but I tell me if you're the same way with your house, even with 3,500 s- square feet you probably don't use 2,000 square feet of it, right? I mean, there's like, there's the living room you never (laughs) use. There's like, there's rooms in the house, right? Like during the pandemic, we were having our kitchen redone and we used two rooms that we never, ever, it was like we were staying at an Airbnb. It was like, oh wow, this is a nice, (laughs) this is our house.
0: That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah, there's a dining room. Yeah, it's not even, you don't even use it. It just becomes like, yeah, this is your house. Like So I also have like two acres. And I remember when I moved in going like, fuck i have two acres like i'm gonna go like set up a like a two acres was just a norm because i was a new york boy so like two acres i was like i was gonna set up like a racetrack and like a pool and all this (laughs) stuff and now it's just like oh fuck i gotta pay to get this mode it's just it's like it's just it's like i'm not complaining but but you realize that you don't wake up every morning and look out at your two acres i got a little story for you so um When I was coming up in New York City, there was a little town in New Jersey called Hoboken, and it was right across from New York, and it was where all the hip, cool people lived, if you didn't live in New York. All I ever wanted was a view. I thought, man, if you could live in New York and have a view, because all you do is look at them brick walls. Finally, I started making some money, I started making some money, and I moved into a million dollar, which is not a lot these days, but back then. A million dollar condo is my first condo. I think it literally cost like nine, 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 nine. It was like right under a million. I had a huge mortgage, but I was making really good money. And I moved in, and my I had this huge picture window in this place called the Hudson T Building. And Eli Manning was my neighbor. This is how exclusive this building was. Eli Manning was my neighbor. Nice. The first day I moved in, I looked out at my view, and it was of the East Side River, West West Side River, East Side River, West Side, West Side River, whatever. I looked out and uh, yeah, West Side River, and I saw a, a ferry going by right under my window. I was on the twelfth floor, and I was like, I lost my breath. I was like, This is gonna be my view. Like, oh my god, I live here now, and I never really cared again. Like after that first time, because I just was like, Oh, that's the ferry. <laughs> like it just be. Beca- and I thought, even that, like even that, just became like that. Oh, this is my view, and people would come over and be like, Oh my god, your view. And I'd be like, yeah, it's nice, right? Like you kind of, I kind of forgot, like, oh, everybody doesn't have that view. And I realized, like, everything can be normalized, everything. And that for the first time, that view made me realize, oh, even if I had a ten million dollar home, it's not like I would walk up, wake up every morning and be like, look at my ten million dollar home. It would just become my stupid fucking big home, and I'd still be like, fuck, I gotta get the pool fixed. I gotta, you know, it would still be the same shit, except for people telling you, like, oh my god, your house is amazing. And I'm sure people have given you compliments. Thirty five hundred is a pretty big house I've had people come over and they're like oh my god your house is beautiful and you go like oh thanks and it really means nothing to you when they say it you're like oh thanks but you don't think like, I know right. how about my fucking house like you just don't think about it <laughs> so
1: I don't know exactly how big my house is I just purposely made it one more than yours as a joke but no I, I, <laughs> I
0: how big is your kidding. house
1: I was it I don't know maybe maybe closer to 3,000 yeah I'm Sorry. bigger than you <laughs> But my point was, what I was getting to earlier, too, is the 10,000. I mean, they must have 9,000 square feet that they don't even use. It's just (laughs) they they just want to be able to furnish it or something. Did you ever
0: see the Ozzy Osbourne show, the Osbournes or something on MTV a while ago? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember his house and, like, where they lived? They showed it, like, an indoor swimming pool and stuff, an indoor swimming pool in their house. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. I remember thinking it looked sad. Like, I remember thinking like, oh, these kids are growing up in this big cavern. It's kind of like, it just had no warmth to me at all. And maybe I'm trying to make myself feel better that I can't afford that house because I probably would move in tomorrow. But I think what you learn is, so my favorite movie of all time is, if you haven't seen it, go see it, it was There Will Be Blood with, oh, what's his name? Daniel Day-Lewis. That is the most perfect, beautiful film on wealth, competition, uh, and you realize that it's a trap. You realize that there's traps in life. You ever watch The Crown? I've watched it while my wife watches it. I'm embarrassed to say that I my wife watches it because I watch. I'm big <laughs> into period pieces. I love those, and I'm kind of a I love chick flicks and stuff. So anyway, so I love The Crown. But what I what you realize when you're watching The Crown very clearly, and if you don't realize it, then you're then you're nuts. Is you realize quickly like these people are not having good lives. There is no way that you can look at them and not think that they're slaves. And their creature comforts are so provided for as payment for the fact that they've given up their lives. But you see that like none of them are happy. And you quickly realize that like, oh my God, that would have been, I used to think like, what well, you know, wow, if you were born into someone that had $50 billion, what a life. But you realize like that would be the most miserable thing in the world to not know what you're capable of doing because you always had a... Parachute of billions of dollars under you, you know, you could never really even enjoy your life.
1: I agree, hundred percent. There's something about earning it and and making it there on is, your own. There, it really and, is, and
0: you know, I, I guess all I've noticed in my older years is that everything that you thought they were scamming you with wasn't a scam. That it's true, money doesn't buy you happiness and all that kind of shit. Not to say that you. I mean, because I have enough money to have a decent life right now. And when I start feeling a recession come in, I get very scared of like, oh shit, do I have to go back out on the road now and take the shittiest gigs in the world just to pay for my son's school and stuff? And I get, and you realize, oh, this is why people think money's happiness. Money doesn't give you happiness, but it definitely gives you peace of mind.
1: Right. It gives you it gives you some comfort, some
0: comfort in knowing like, okay, good, I'm not going to get evicted. You know what? I don't mean to pry too much into your life, but have you ever been seriously in debt? No. Good for you, man. I'm a bad Jew. Maybe (laughs) 15 years ago, I was making very good money on the road and I had a million dollar condo and bills out the wazoo. And one day I started getting less and less bookings. And then every month I started making a little bit less, a little bit less. And then one day I was like, <laughs> I'm in debt. Like, I don't know. I remember thinking like, I don't know where I'm going to get, how I'm going to pay. If I if I start going into this account, I'm going to use that up real fast. And I started going like panicking because I was really starting to go like, I don't know if I can afford all these bills. And it wasn't that. And what it was is I, I needed to downgrade and I moved out of that place and met my wife and I'm happier and all that stuff. But what's funny is like, I realized like, oh, that's why people (laughs) do not take this the wrong way. But I was going to say, that's why people in dire straits like wind up killing their spouse for insurance money and stuff. Or like, because you start, because that feeling of dread of like, fuck, I owe these bills and I don't know where I'm going to get money for it. You start, you get a, you get a panicked feeling. It's the worst feeling in the history of the world. And And after going through that, I promised myself I would never let myself get in debt again. I'd always live within my means.
1: Well, two lessons there. One is uh, no one out there should be uh, killing their spouse. Well,
0: don't be judgmental. We don't know the whole story.
1: <laughs> but two, you're right. It's it. The people like you hear all these stories all the time. It's like you live with outside of your means. And like I've never been like I. I don't care what car I drive. You know, what I mean, to me, it's to get to point A to B. It's like you know, I. If it's But I agree with you. It's it's about you have to know where your lot in life. And dude, uh, we
0: are so we are so old now that we can say. You can say, I use my car to get from point A to point B, like a dad would say. And I don't laugh at you. I go, yeah, yeah, point A to point B. Like, it makes, like, I'm (laughs) like, yeah, that makes, like, that's how old we've gotten. That, like, when you say that, I don't go, like, you're so old. I go, like, man, it makes sense.
1: (laughs) Sorry to interrupt my conversation with Mitch Faitel. But in all seriousness, if you're in debt or ever need help, just ask somebody close to you. There's always people there to support you. And we're going to take a quick break. And we're back with Mitch Vatel about to talk about not the peaks, but the valleys that he experienced during his career. And we're back. So, Mitch, you, you keep mentioning uh, selling less tickets or either d- doing this. And, like, is there a, a story behind that? Or is it maybe the, is the story just yeah. you can peak in the comedy business? You no, know,
0: it's a pretty good story. Um, oh, Boy, how deep do you want to get? As deep as you want to go. OK, maybe it'll help someone one day. I have a, I don't want to say fear of success because I like being successful, but I have a discomfort with too much success. I'm very, uh, as I got older, I've learned that I'm very antisocial and a little bit agoraphobic, which means I get nervous leaving my house. I'm very nervous talking to people. This kind of thing I can do a thousand times a day, talking to you on a podcast and talking about my life. I can't do normal walking into a bar with a friend and having a beer. Like, I just can't do that. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And as I got more and more successful, I was expected to do more and more of that. I was expected to go out with club owners and people that were coming to my shows. And wherever I went, people knew me and wanted to bring me out. And I was miserable. I didn't like that feeling. All I wanted to do was go in, do my show, and then go back to my hotel room and write more jokes. That's what I've and watch porn back then. That's what I did. Um, I've given up porn s- consequently, subsequently. So I got very successful, and then I realized I wasn't comfortable all the time. I wanted to go back to the days where people didn't know me and I could just go on stage and blow people away. But now everybody was expecting something from me. And I'd have people showing up at shows with signs and people going, I brought my whole family and you're my favorite comedian. And I have a mental illness where I would go. Oh, I'm going to let these people down. I don't like that person. So I never, so I wasn't enjoying stand up anymore because I was just like thinking that I was going to let everybody down. So I ultimately kind of like pulled further away from like my writing and. And that's when I said I was on stage one day and I was thinking about what to do shopping. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And I will maintain that you will never be great at anything that you don't enjoy. And I started to not enjoy it anymore. It became a job. I think that the good analogy is there are football players and basketball players who say it's become a job. I don't even enjoy it anymore. You know, and then And then ultimately, you can't be good at something if you're not enjoying it. There are other players like Michael Jordan who somehow or, you know, whatever, these are the guys who like they can play at a very high level and they still enjoy doing it. And they don't feel like they're. I've really appreciated sports figures because they're able to not feel this horror at letting people down. If someone comes to their games and they have a bad game, they really don't care about that. If they do, they won't make it. Well, I became the guy that cared that much. So I just like slowly like started not writing as much and trying as hard and was mailing it in. And I wasn't writing new jokes. And I think people felt that over time. And then I did a special. Everybody thought was going to be the best special ever. And I remember I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy taping it. I didn't enjoy writing it. I was doing it just to get to the next level. And the special tanked, it's called Magical. It's to this day, it's on YouTube and stuff. And it gets me it makes me squirm because it's so not me. And this is part of being a performer. You know, like when people hear about, oh, this comedian Mitch and oh, I'm going to go check him out on YouTube. And sometimes clips from that special will come up. And I'm like, that's not me. It was me like, you talked about how much I don't come out of character. It was me like doing the character too much because I was like trying to oversell it. And then that special tanked as it should have and then I just kind of like took time off and had a son and then like would do gigs that I liked. And then one day I got on stage again and I was like, fuck, I love this again. And it was because a lot of the expectations had stopped because I I got to a certain point And instead of going forward, like a lot of other comedians did, I kind of went backwards. And I can't look back at my life and say that I have any regrets because there are lots of comedians that go. Because everybody said like, oh, my God, you were supposed to be this guy that played theaters and stuff. But I don't really have regrets cuz I realized now that like that wasn't going to make me happy. That was like the the 10 million dollar house. Like it was like what made me happy ultimately was getting married and having my boy and maybe giving him the self-esteem and the tools that I don't have that he won't feel that things are expected of him. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, absolutely. I'm better than I've ever been as a comic, but now it's under my terms and I'm and I'm enjoying it again. And luckily I had a nice big run where I made some money, invested that money and now I feel like if another run comes up where people start rediscovering my new new stuff, because I have a new special out, which I'll plug to you, that is a special I always wanted to do now, which is called Mitch Fatale Bad Girls. It's available on my website, um, for a nominal fee. But if you watch that special, that's the new Mitch Fatale as a married guy. And this is new material. And it's like I was feeling it again. And I think you'll feel if you watch it that, like, it's more the old Mitch Fatale evolved and it's made me happy so that's a very long-winded answer to what happened so that's kind of what happened is i kind of like i think our as human beings we tend to go what make we're, we're more comfortable and i was not comfortable being like famous it made me uncomfortable if it came around now i think i'd enjoy it but it would be for different reasons
1: i totally understand my mom was a phobic and like you at when in public when work in a room you know it, like in under her terms hilarious person yeah. very yeah. funny So like, agoraphobic, being afraid to go out, doesn't mean you're completely recluse. It just means there's just certain things that you hold yourself back. You're not
0: reclusive, you're just... And there are people that have really bad agoraphobia, where they go out and they panic. I don't ever panic. I just get anxious and uncomfortable and want to get away from it. So, you know, I've read about... I've learned a lot about agoraphobia. So my wife and I were talking one day, and she asked me about it. And I said, let me explain to you my life on the road. Because she'd said how fun it is that I go on the road. I said, if I go on the road, I stay in the... (laughs) I stay in the hotel all day. I wake up and I work out, and I'm so happy. I work out, and then I write, and I answer emails, and I do podcasts with Dwoskin, 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 and Dwoskin, and I and I do and I, I like I love this. Like right now, I'm happy. I would say to my wife, "So this is me on the road." So I do do all that, and then I start to see that show time's coming. So it's like four o'clock, and I go, "Fuck!" It's like four o'clock already. Like my show's at seven. I only have a couple more hours to. Do this. And I said to my wife, "Go." And then I start going like more and more uncomfortable that the time's coming that I'm going to have to leave the house to go out and perform. And then almost to a person, by the by, by the time it starts being like an hour, I'm almost always late to my gigs because I put off getting ready for so long because I don't want to leave. And I get this sense of dread and the sense of anxiety. And then I finally push myself out the door. And I get to the club and I perform. And then I'm so happy I did it. I'm so happy. That's what I said to my wife. I go, now I'm elated because now I did the shows. I wrote the jokes, all the jokes I tried. I I met people. But then I want to go back home now. Like, I don't want to go out now. So my life is hurt because of that. But so my wife was amazed because I was like, that's my life. Like, I literally like I'm waiting to have to leave the hotel. And I get a sense of anxiety and dread about it coming. And it all comes from me not wanting to let people down. Me feeling that something's expected of me. And when I'm by myself in my hotel room, I'm just for the first time totally at peace. So I want to give my son the tools to not have to deal with that. And that's my sole goal in life right now.
1: I can't think of a better goal in life. Yeah, that's what we do. We equip our kids, make the next generation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever stop to think that like any issues or shit that you deal with would be worth it if you could, if you could learn how to, if you could be there so your kids don't have to go through it. Like I, I keep telling my wife, all the pain I've gone through in my life will be meaningless to me if it was because, if it helped my son, if it helped me be a better dad for my son to not have that. Because I came from very mentally ill parents and God bless them. I realized now that they were just fucking nuts. Like they were nuts. I hated them for a long time because I thought that there were certain tools that I wasn't given by them that I would have really liked to have had. But I'm glad that I can now give my son, who's amazing, he's just an amazing little man, and I can give him the tools that I wish they would have given me. And so I'd rather he have the tools than I have them. Like, I'd rather. So if I had to go through all this pain to know how to be a better dad for him, then it was worth it.
1: I think that's great. And it sounds like that is, you're fulfilling that goal. So
0: yeah. And I want to get my dick sucked a lot, not by my son, (laughs) by hot girls on Tinder, not on Twitter. My wife would <laughs> laugh at that, by the way, so I'm allowed to say it.
1: My, uh, I, I get that 100. It's, it's funny how like when you make fun of your wife or your wife's part of it, and people are watching it. Like when my wife comes to one of my shows, she can't sit with friends if they've come to the show because they can't separate the fact that anything I say on stage yeah. is is just uh, you know on stage version yeah. of my wife, you know, and it's a it's a character version. It's not I'm not literally.
0: I have a comment question for you. Are you when you go on stage, when you have family there, wife and friends, are you aware when you're on stage that they're in the audience? I ask
1: that they're not within That's sight. That's not my
0: question, though, because like, I, I do can... that, too. But are you aware that they're out there?
1: I am, yeah. but I am probably more so in the beginning. But now, if I, as long as I know who's in the audience, I can block it out and do what I need to do when I step out. The one time I got thrown is... I stepped on stage and I saw a friend who I hadn't seen in like 15 years, just staring yeah. at me, and completely took me out of it. Now, if I'd known she was there before yeah. I stepped on stage, I would that would have been fine. But it completely took me out of it. It was like my brain uh-huh. just went, "Oh my god, look!" Yeah. <laughs> it was like yeah. so, yeah. You know I, what's
0: no? The only thing that's taken me out of the moment that badly was when I've gone on stage and people that were at the first show came into the second show to see me again, and they're right up front. And I look down, I see them, and then I go they're going to know this is a big scam they're going to know that like all my lines are rehearsed it's the same exact show and i give my and that's what i'm talking about pressure i put so much pressure on myself that these two people i don't even know just because i know they saw the first show came back to see the second show because i'm so good that they're fucking right there and i'm like looking the whole time and going like i gotta switch up my act for them like i gotta think of new material like, i could give them i empower them so much i'm a basket case every time i do these podcasts i realize like i'm a fucking basket case because i don't think other comics deal with this
1: i think everything no i remember i have the exact same story you just told i was watching i went and saw mark maron and the exact same thing happened to him i'll tell you the point of view from me watching from the audience mark maron does the show i go to the second show and he realizes the person in the front row was at the first show just like you just said completely threw him he felt the need to throw out his entire act and do an entire show just for this person. And I remember, to this day, it's been forever. And I was like, that was the most annoying thing ever that he, he, (laughs) like, you know, he should have just done his show. Because that person for you, and I'm sure this person for Mark, they came, it's like, I think it's comics, it's hard to think. We want to think that it's in the moment. But I think to them, it's like listening to a record. And just like we'll go see... Bob Seger or who are Billy Joel or whoever we like, and we want to hear the same song over and over again. They want to hear it because they want to re-experience the same 100%.
0: thing. 100%. Not only do they want to experience the same thing, but like it's fun for them to also see kind of a little behind the scenes. They don't hate you for it. I look at it like this. If you see a magician twice, you know the same tricks are going to come out, but you'll notice like, oh, maybe that's how he does it. I noticed he did this, but you don't feel like, I ah, sucks now. I figured him out. Like, so when we tell a punchline and people go like, oh, oh, that wasn't an improv. That they, They're almost impressed by that. Like, even I'm impressed by that. Have you ever worked with a comic and they say something and you're like, oh my God, that was brilliant that they just thought of that. And then you realize like, oh, they do that every show. And even you go, I've been in the I've been in comedy since I was 15 years old. And I'll still be like, ah, you fucking got me. Like, I thought that was an improv line. Like that line where they go, can you do that? And I'm like, you don't hate them for it. You almost go like, you almost tip your hat like, wow, you scammed me. It's almost impressive.
1: Uh, J.R. Remick, rest in peace. He, he did this bit where he would drink, out, he drank beer out of a straw and then acted like he didn't realize he had just done it, makes a joke right. about it. And, then ne- and I'm like, that was brilliant. That was brilliant yeah. reaction. Next show does the same thing. And I realized, oh my God, that's comedy. Comedy is making it look like it's happening for the very first time. And if you can do yeah. that, which um, I know we have a mutual friend, Mike Green, who I think is amazing at, at doing just yeah. that. That's that to me is incredible. I remember working with someone, and he'd bring people on stage, and they, "What do you do?" And they go, "Oh, I do this." And he had the funniest line I've ever heard, ever heard. And I'm like, "That was so funny. Did you make it up that when that guy said that?" He says, "No, but I did make it up the first time somebody right, said right, right, right. Yeah." And that's yeah.
0: and and so I have a similar similar story. I was working with a magician. I bring a magician because I wanted to be a magician as a kid. And I'm still, I wouldn't say fascinated by it, but I still love the wonder of magic. I still love that we're watching something that we know isn't happening, but we convince ourselves it is. And we're, no one's sawing someone in half, but but, right. but I love the idea of magic. So I remember I was working with a comedian once who had some magic in his act. It's a great little story. And then he would do the thing where he'd hand someone an orange and he'd like, put your head against it and guess what card's in there, blah, blah, blah. And then he'd cut the, he'd cut the orange open and he'd pull out the card that they were thinking of. And every time he hit the card. Well, I remember in the green room before one of the third shows, we were just talking. And as we're talking, he's rolling up the card and he is cutting an orange and putting it in. And I remember going like, "It's a it's a fucking scam. Like I remember going like, you you're putting the thing in orange, and I was like, "Well, of course he's putting the thing in the orange." <laughs> there's, <laughs> like, there's there's no way that that's just in the orange. But even I felt like, "Wow!" Like, I knew he was set, but to see him doing it in front of me, I felt like, "Ah, oh, you you're not really guessing who's it? Like, you know, like." And it was still amazing to me that, like, even after all these years, that I still was like shocked. To see him doing this in front of me, even though I know he did it. And it's like, so it was still so fun. Now, the next time he did the trick, I was like, I know that he puts the thing in the orange in the back. But of course, he does because <laughs> it doesn't magically appear in the orange. And I remember thinking that that was like, kudos to you that I was still shocked that you were setting up the freaking putting the thing in the orange. I know.
1: Amazing. Right. But you watch it from with a whole different point of view when, yeah. once you know this. Yeah. It's not like Absolutely. you look
0: at it like, oh, this guy sucks you're almost impressed by it. And so I try to remember that now if someone comes back to a show to not change my show, it'd be like they're in here because they like the show. God, I wish I knew all this when I was a kid and I wish I had different parents and I wish I lived in your house and not mine.
1: We all wish something, but it what made us made us. So here we are. And I know you have to go because I know you have to go pick up your son.
0: I'm lying. I don't have a son. I'm just agoraphobic and I don't like being on podcasts. What would that be called? (laughs) Podcastophobic? I actually love podcasts because it's it's. uh, I like any kind of conversation where you can talk real. I'm just not good at the... Are you good at that? Just real... Can you go to a bar and just shoot the shit with someone and talk about like...
1: No. If it's silent. Like for some reason, like the problem I have at like parties or anything is... If there's any noise going on, and I can't hear what they're saying, and I can't hear myself talk, that's why I think I like being on stage. It's silent. Focused, it's you focused talking, on you, focused on me. And it, it's not about me. It's just about to, it's about like, if I have to keep going, hey, I can't hear you. Or I say something funny and they go, what? Because they couldn't hear right. me. It's like, yeah, it's, it's such a non-enjoyable experience
0: for me. Yeah. Anything leaving my house is not enjoyable to me. Actually, that's not true. Because once I go out and force myself into it, I love it. I, but there's just certain things I love. I still, I finally got to the point in my life where I said, uh, I will. I've re- told my wife, I will not go into a dance club anymore. I won't go any place where I have to scream in someone's ear and they have to scream in my ear. I won't do it. And she's like, but can't you just relax and drink and have fun and just enjoy the vibe? And I'm like, no, it's if I can't communicate with another human being and they have to scream and there's hot girls screaming in my ear and stuff, I will just leave. I've walked out. I've just left her there. And I go, go have fun because she has so much fun at those things. I'm like, I can't. I won't do it anymore.
1: I have the same exact reaction as you. Same. It's just it's too loud as bad. Unless you're focused on the band. If it's a band and you own, the only expectation is listening to that yeah, band. I agree. Then I'm, fine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> then I'm fine. I agree. All right, man. Let's do this again. I'll do this again if you want. Yeah,
1: anytime. Uh, but in, I'll just cap it with Mitch Fatale.com and bad girls. Get bad girls. It's my new special.
0: I hope that was good. It was kind of serious. I
1: I like serious conversations with comedians. All right. You're my best friend. You're my best friend. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) All right. That was comedian Mitch Fatale. Mitchfatale.com. You can rent his new comedy special, Bad Girls. Mitch Fatale is hilarious. Like I said, I had the honor of opening for him way back when I started doing comedy. It was a great, great weekend. And I remember it so fondly if Mitch comes to your town, check him out. Check out his website. Check out his comedy special. You got all that goodness. Can't believe this episode is over already. Thanks again to Mitch Fatel. Thank you, my friend. And thanks to all of you. Coming back week after week, it means the world to me. And I'll see you next time.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word. And we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations.